this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. everyone this is david welcome back behind the velvet rope let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one the only miss sophie b hawkins hi david how are you how are you what is going on how are you today and where are you today well at the moment actually i'm in a place in connecticut and um it's it's a great day it's a there was a hurricane warning but basically just huge rains, which I love. I've been out in the rain a lot with my dogs and my son. And I was just, and I've, you know, gotten to write. And one of these great days, cooking, writing, swimming in the rain, walking in the rain. It's amazing. I love a rainy day. I totally agree. There's nothing that makes me happier. If the sun never came out again, I mean, I know I'm going to get hate for saying this, but I would live a very happy life. No, I love rain. I love overcast. I love moods. It's just amazing. It's, I think it depends sort of on your genetics, personally. I think so, too. Well, you're in Connecticut, but I know that you are. I, I am in Chelsea, New York, so I am uh, representing New York. I know that you are born and raised in New York, so shout out to New York City. Yes, I'm born and raised in New York and still have my place in New York. I'm just in Connecticut for the moment. And... Um, uh, you know, New York is flooded right now, as far as all my friends have told me. Some people told me they were waist deep in water in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Wow. Well, Chelsea is like nothing. I woke up and I'm like, where's the storm? And I've already been to the gym and I just ran out to get coffee and I'm like, it's raining, but it's not a storm. So maybe that's coming later. Do you know, David, Chelsea is one of my most sort of um, rich memory neighborhoods you know in new york because i grew up there but also even people who don't grow up there you have these times of your life where you develop in particular with certain people 
and certain things happen in those times of development. And Chelsea is such a rich memory for me in terms of a period of time. Do you have the keys to the park? Oh, that's Gramercy, sorry. Yeah, I've always been. But see, I associate my early days in New York with you because I moved to New York in 94 and I moved right to Christopher Street. And I know you used to live on I I did. 165 Christopher. Oh my God, I love those days. That was when I was first signed to Sony. I know. That's when I first moved to New York and you were having your big moment and I lived on Christopher. And I remember reading that you were on Chris. I was at 95 Christopher Street. Like it was a great apartment. That's amazing. And then and then when I was working on the musical with Thomas Meehan, I was also living on Christopher Street, but this time in a brownstone right across from St. Luke's. Did you love growing up in New York? Yes, I did. And I was very aware that I was growing up in the best place in the universe. And I didn't travel a lot. We didn't go out to restaurants. We didn't travel. Um, we, we had a Chinese restaurant we went to when we were older once, maybe once every couple of months. But in a, in a way, our family lives sort of like country bumpkins on, on the Upper West Side. But I don't think that was that unusual then. So I did, I was aware that I had the most beautiful park, the most beautiful nature, the most beautiful trees. And this is the thing, David, when you get Central Park, you're not just getting green and trees, you're getting the most beautiful artistic design of a park, seriously in the world. I don't think there's a more beautiful design than Central Park West as a piece of art. So I grew up in a piece of art, basically. Central Park West was my backyard, I mean Central Park. And then the whole city was, you know, we went around in bare feet in the summers. It was dirty. There was a ton of crime when I grew up. There was so in our neighborhood on the Upper West Side. There was you know no um, there was no people you know who looked like us. So it was really exciting, and I felt part of everything, part of all these languages, all these cultures. I could. I mean, I'm from Connecticut, so as I grew up coming into the city, what? What part? I was just in Connecticut. I'm from Orange, Connecticut, originally, like right past Fairfield. Where are you in, are you in like Fairfield County now or like? Yes, Connecticut though reminds me of New York. That's why I actually love it. The trees, the feeling, does it remind you of New York? Yeah, and people don't realize like there's, first of all, there's a lot of people I know, especially because of the pandemic. I know so many people that have moved to Connecticut. Like it's kind of like, you always hear about people moving to Jersey and Long Island. I'm like, there's a lot going on in Connecticut people. Well, wait, I think Connecticut is, we shouldn't talk about it because it's sort of the best kept secret. But it's completely creative, very down to earth. It's really the perfect mixture of California or like LA and Manhattan, but then with space and a lot of trees. And you go to the little towns, like the little towns are so cute, like the main streets, like. They're amazing and they have everything. And the libraries are stocked with things that even aren't in Manhattan. There's like an old, you know, you talked about Fairfield. There's an old movie theater that is it called the Sacred Heart, the community movie theater. I mean, like I saw, um, I saw Citizen Kane there. They're playing amazing, the mentoring candidate. It's in, sort of an exciting place to explore. So but if you wanted to talk about New York, we're not talking about New York, but it does feel, plus what I love about Connecticut is every single town within, you know, a hundred feet, there's a train station into Manhattan. 100% and they run all the time. <laughs> when you were growing up, was it always music for you or did you have ideas of doing something else or it was just- Well, you know, David, I mean, my clearest memory of when I thought what I want to do was when I was very young, not, you know, I wanted to be a drummer and that was from six on, but, but I didn't think that 
I want to be a drummer, therefore I have to drum. I just thought, I, I will be a drummer, I want to be a drummer. But then it wasn't until I was nine that I actually forced my mother into taking me to a drum lesson. She took me once, and I think she figured, because we were raised so independently, that at nine I should be able to find my lesson again in East Harlem, but I couldn't. I went, but I couldn't find the little jazz school. So that ended my drumming career at nine. But I did have the medal that the man gave me. It was a jazz school, and he gave me a medal for, um, for being able to keep really good rhythm, which was great. And, and I wore the medal, and I was called out on that because everyone in my class knew that I wasn't actually a drummer, even though I kept saying I was. Then it wasn't until I was 14 years old that I said to my Aunt Linda, I have to play African drums. And I don't know why it crystallized so clearly for me. David, it wasn't like I was studying Africa. It wasn't like there were African drummers around me. It was just a very clear thought, like a telepathic thought. I said, Aunt Linda, I need to play African drums. And then she turned to me and said, I have an African drum teacher. And I was like, what? This is great. So basically that, then I didn't stop. I met him. And I never stopped drumming. After the first lesson, I said, that's it. I found my path. But when you but when you asked me what I wanted to do, there was a time in between all that when my father put on the song Positively. It was the, I think it was the album Positively for Street, right? What's the song? Um, it is It is the song, right? Somebody yeah. was corrected me. They, they corrected me and said it wasn't on an album. It was just a single. But anyway, the song, he put on the song and he, and that, that lyric, um, I wish that for just one day you could stand in my shoes. You would know what a drag it is to see you. And my father was walking across the room and I was looking out the window and he said, don't you just love that lyric? And I thought, yeah, but I love everything. I love the music. I love the vibe. I love the lyric. I love the voice. But it sounded like this is New York to me, crystallized. This song is New York. And I remember that day I was walking down 85th Street and I said, I want to be that song. That was the first time I knew I wanted to be something really particular. That song. I want to be that song. It didn't dawn on me that I would ever be a songwriter. Wow. Well, it all kind of worked out in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, did you have like, you know, everyone knows, you know, 1992, Tongues and Tales, your breakout album. Did you have like the lean years of struggling in the business or did that all happen pretty quickly? Oh, yeah. I mean, to me, the business, yes. Okay, to answer really um, the way most people think of it, you know, when you see the movie versions, there's these really rough and tumble years and then somebody makes it. The really rough and tumble years for me were from, you know, it, 14 to 20, 20, I guess. But it felt like an eternity because I'm writing a memoir about it, but I don't like to call it a memoir because I don't feel like it's, my one final book, but it's basically the story. It's called Come Inside My Jungle Book. It's a story of me, you know, finding African drums, moving in with my African drum teacher and becoming an African drummer, then Manhattan School of Music, then leaving all that, drumming for bands, writing songs, all that, going into the New York scene and then the New York scene of, you know, the downtown PS122, the East Village scene, and then, you know, finally getting signed. But when I say finally getting signed, I never thought that the lean years were ever gonna end. I liked them. I liked being a coach tech or being a waitress or doing whatever kind of job and playing as much as I could and, and acting because I wanted to be a better songwriter. So I wanted to learn how to, to, to understand a monologue and play structure and all that. I didn't think 
when I get signed, I will then be rich and famous and this will be over. I always thought this is the best. I'm learning, growing. All my friends are, are so interesting. They want, they want to be dancers. They want to be actors. They want to be musicians. You know, there were some law students, you know. So when you say the lean years, I mean, I'm in the lean years now again. I'm, I'm beginning, I'm re- I'm at the beginning, I'm writing a musical, I'm writing this book, I have all my music to release. It's always the lean years for me. Rothy's believes style is about more than just fashion. That's why everything they make is exceptionally comfortable, totally sustainable, and my favorite, fully machine washable. As summer winds down, make the most of your time in the sun with Rothy's best-selling flats, loafers, and sneakers. From flip-flops in an array of colors to shoes made for exploring the great outdoors, Rothy's has everything you need to step into the sunshine wherever you go. Plus, their spacious, washable bags are perfect for summer getaways. I just got the coolest pair of driving loafers from Rothy's. Although they come in a variety of colors, I chose camo. That's right. They are camo color. So freaking cool. I love them. And the best part about it, living in New York City, as dirty as they get, I just throw them in the wash and they are brand new. That's right. There is good news for any of the guys listening. Rothy's is not just for women anymore. Rothy's now sells men's sneakers and men's driving loafers. Rothy's men's lines features the same level of craftsmanship and attention to detail as Rothy's women's line. They're durable, they're washable, and they're better for the planet. I love my Rothy's. And again, I wear them night and day and I throw them in the wash. They survive wash after wash after wash. That's right. How many pairs of shoes do you have that you can throw in the wash and they survive? So keep that summertime feeling going with washable, sustainable, stylish shoes and bags from Rothy's. Head to rothys.com slash velvet to find your new warm weather favorites today. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash velvet. R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash velvet. And you'll be thanking me later. When, and then when people say, what is fame like? I'm like, fame is not a feeling. Fame is not a place. Fame is something that people put on you and it usually feels pretty weird. You know? And then money is money. I mean, it comes, it goes. I talk about on the show all the time. No, I, one of the things I love talking about is the concept of fame because I truly think it's like, for some people, it's like the most addicting drug and it's like, people yeah, have I've such, seen that. so, I mean, was it, so tongues and tails comes out 1992 critically oh. acclaimed you're nominated for like best new artist. Yeah. I you mean, know, I have a funny story about that. Do you want me? And it's yeah. one that I didn't know that I would ever tell you, but this is an example. So I'm living on 165 Christopher Street in apartment 6Z. I absolutely loved being in my apartment. I was, the minute the record came out, I mean, even before the first record came out, I was already, of course, always writing, always writing. I am always writing, by the way, writing for the next record and feeling this pressure. And everyone's always saying to you, you know, the first record's out, you better start preparing for your next record and you're in your head you're like I'm always writing anyway why do the people have to keep putting this extra pressure on you like that you're going to now live from album to album rather that you're going to keep living as an artist anyway so I so all that pressure to now you're going to promote but in between all the promoting you're going to still be the artist you were to create this beautiful beautiful music okay so then one day my doorbell rings 
and these two beautiful kids were there, as a boy and a girl. They know who they were. I don't remember their names. They handed me a bouquet of flowers. You know, I was in my sweatpants, my T-shirt, just like today. And I was like 20-something. And I was so shocked that these people knew where I lived. And they loved my music. And they handed me flowers. And they said, we don't want to bother you. We just wanted to tell you how much we love your music. And it's my apartment. You know, all, whatever they saw. And I was so, like, they hear these people feel like they know me. And in some ways they do, because my songs are incredibly intimate. But I am just exposed. Now, this is my apartment. This is me. I just answered the door. What's happening? So that's what I'm trying to say is that maybe they thought some assistant would answer the door. Maybe they thought my manager would answer. You know what I mean? And it was, yeah. it was so weird. And then to say, thank you, you know, thank you so much. And then to have a little bit of a conversation and then close the door. I felt like, wow, suddenly my life is so permeable to all these forces. That's what fame is. It's really sort of, it's uncomfortable that way. You feel like you have no skin. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Yeah, I, I people think they know you. And I think a lot of times people paint a charmed life and, you know, like, listen, there's fame and then there's fame. I mean, there's lots of levels in between. So I think a lot of people just think if you're famous, you're ultra rich and you have no problems and life is wonderful. Well, yes. And then you get on in life. And my piano player, Ed, said to me once, his mother said to him, you don't want other people's problems. So like you might think somebody over there is richer and, you know, more popular or whatever. But what you but if you had their life, you'd have all their problems and you'd rather have your own. And that's a really good thing for people to remember. It's like the emperor's new clothes. Fame is um, something that is a lot of work and it's a lot of um it's basically about, it, it becomes like where people feel like they have access to you, but you feel like you have access to nothing because you have to keep up this front because you know that they expect something of you or you think you know. Anyways, to break down the walls of fame and success is very difficult because as, unless that's what you want. Now, look, some people want that. Like some people want a sunny day and not a cloudy day. But for me as an artist, I was like, this is the worst thing that can happen because for me, my whole life is about breaking down walls and being so curious about people and understanding people from the inside out. Now this whole barrier comes and everyone's, you know, it, it really was a problem for me. I had a, I had a huge many years um, of growth to, to get through, to, to be comfortable in this arena because it wasn't my aspiration. And that's really what it was. Like when you became famous, it was like, this is a, I don't, I don't like this. Yeah, like I love being on stage and singing to an audience and and new and humorous things come out and new thoughts. Like when I'm on stage, nothing will ever be scripted. I've tried because I even like my writing. I try to script, you know, things and whatever. But I noticed it just sounds terrible. I'm best when I'm spontaneous, David. So 
for me, when so what I like about the process of being a known songwriter is that I can get on stage and people are smiling and and then I new things come out and they kind of ride the train with me wherever my mind lands there most of them are going to get it and then we've had this new sort of spiritual experience and that's what i like about it is the opportunity to have the spiritual experience with a lot of people and and then i suppose that now in my life when i want to work with other artists it is good to have a name probably right but 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 those are the perks for me is that that is that i can hopefully reach out to an artist and they would consider because of my track record working with me, you know. It all comes back to the work for you. Yes. I get it. I get it. That makes sense. It's like you're in it for the work and then, you know, the product kind of lives on its own when it's released and it's yes. success. I, I get it. I get it. That yes, makes when, sense when, to me. When some when people ask me, how did I feel when I heard Dan, I wish I was your lover on the radio. And I remember I was in Atlanta and it came on the radio and this wonderful woman I called Effie, she worked at Sony. And she said, oh my gosh, how does it feel to hear your song on the radio? And I said, it's just not good enough yet. Like I, I, the mix wasn't right or the, this or the vocal. It's so funny, like it was, it was still in process for me. And I think every artist is that way. I think although I might love like for instance, an episodic by some particular writer. And I think it's perfect. If I spoke to that writer, I'm sure that they would think they would know in their head all the things that didn't happen, you know? Right. But being nominated for Best New Artist with a for Grammy, that must be nice. It was, but you know, there's a story about that. One of my dog wants to come in. But David, there's a story about that that makes it not as, not what you thought. Here's my dog. Okay. Yeah, because um, I think it's nothing but nice. Okay, so I would have thought it was nothing but nice too. But here's what happened. I'm nominated for, for Best New Artist, and my manager at the time said, um, he, now this could, may or may not be true, but this is what my manager said at the time. Sony doesn't want you to go to the Grammys because you're not going to win. They didn't want to pay for my ticket to go to L.A., from New York to L.A., come on, to appear at the Grammys. And either they thought, I well, they knew I wasn't going to win because they were already, you know, they'd already put all their eggs in the basket of um, Arrested Development. And they wanted Arrested Development to win. But the thing is, what would have been perfect, and if I had been my mother, I would have said, it doesn't matter what Sony wants. What matters is that the world is saying that they love your music and you have to go and say thank you. Now, that's what I wanted. And it actually makes me kind of cry because I didn't get that chance. Because it was so political. And, and it's terrible because it made me feel, you know, less than this big. So in other words, the Grammy was almost a punishment or the nomination was almost a punishment at the time. And the Grammys were upset that I didn't show up. And I didn't know that. I thought they didn't want me to because when your record company says they don't want you to show up, you feel that the world feels that way because they were my world. They were promoting me. No, they signed me. I thought they really, they were like my parents, you know? And, I mean, yeah. So, so anyways... And I'm not, don't feel bad for me because I did get the nomination and it is, my life has been amazing. I'm just saying that when I think of the child that I was and now I'm a mother, I wouldn't ever let that happen to my children. I would get right in there and I would say, you're going and I'm going to make sure you look fantastic and you thank everybody who voted for you. you know, like that's, that's what I've evolved to. But it's taken being a mother to really understand how I must have felt as a child. 
Right. It's such a political business. Like they just say arrested development is who we wanted back. And it's the same record yeah. company. And that's how it that's is. how it was then. You know, I, and I don't even, I'm not saying anything bad about the Grammy. They, they were, and I found out later, many years later, that the Grammy board, whatever, really was upset that I didn't go. They made this beautiful mural of me. Apparently wow. I didn't watch it because I was so, I felt so left out, you know? And the thing is, David, this stuff comes from childhood. The feeling of being left out, not wanted, kicked out is all from my childhood because truthfully, if I had been, um, if I had been, you know, in felt, if I had not felt that way as a child, I would have said, F you, Sonia, I'm going. But I didn't have those balls. So anyways, what I did find out was the Grammy people really did want me to come and were upset that I didn't come. And that to me was even more upsetting later. That was like the, the next level of the bam. That, that, that they felt slighted by me. And I was like, oh my God, by me. Right. You know what I mean? So this yeah. is the thing you have to know about the world. And this is why you need, you know, good parents and you need at least somebody on your team. And my manager was, was a jerk. You guys know that the only thing I like talking about as much as reality TV and pop culture is skincare. You know how thrilled I get when I find a new skincare product that really works. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about ORG. ORG's skincare's mineral face peel and body exfoliants are amazing and they help bring that glow back. They gently exfoliate and hydrate your skin and only require a few sprays or rubs. What I love is you get immediate satisfaction by seeing the dead skin peel away. Their face peel that I use, it literally, literally makes you feel like you were in a spot getting a professional facial for hours. And I really do love the instant proof. You, The skin, the dead skin peels right away. And that's what I personally love about it. Listen, right now for Behind the Velvet Rope listeners, ORG Skincare is offering 15% off your entire purchase. Skin is complex, but caring for your skin doesn't have to be. Visit ORG Skincare skincare.com today and use promo code velvet to see for yourself. That's O-R-G skincare.com promo code velvet and get 15% off your entire purchase. You know, and, and that person should have said she, she has to go. This is her career. It's her business. Sony's only a part of it. Right. Yeah. And it's not, and it's not even Sony now. I'm, I'm not trying to say all oh, corporations are this way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that was what happened then. Those were the powers that be then. Maybe they were afraid I was going to say I'm omnisexual. Maybe they were afraid I was going to say something like rebellious because I was, you know, definitely I spoke my mind. So maybe they were afraid, you know, we don't want to get her in front of a mic. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Who knows, David? Who knows? But if you had to do it over again, you would go. Of course I would go. I would go and I'd be really grateful. What about, so... Your song was huge, but the original video is banned by MTV. Yes. So why, I mean, this is just so, I mean, well, first of all, it's to me like, you know, a song that was, you know, as a member of the LGBTQIA plus community, thank you for that song. It was one of the first songs that was visibly kind of talking about, you know, putting it out there. What was the first song? Well, I don't know. I mean, this is like I for think me. It was the first song. Yeah, it's I mean, for it me. It's, anyways, pop song. It's the first memory for me. 
yeah, this there probably wasn't anything before. That. I don't think I don't think I ever remember. Um, but you know what? I'm probably wrong because always there's the people that you don't know about are usually the groundbreakers, and probably like Chris Williamson. What I don't even know, but I guess it was the first major pop song. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. There's nothing I can think of that other that was before this. So it put it out there. I mean, is that why you think this was banned by MTV? Was it because of the word damn? Was it because- You know what they told me why? It was because I was dancing with an African-American intimately. Remember we, in the, in the cheesecloth video where, you know, where I look like Mowgli from the jungle. Yeah. We were doing this beautiful dance of our faces with our fingers and we were very close. And they thought that America would have a problem with a white woman and a black man. Can you believe that? That's what uh, they said. Wow. It was race. So it had nothing to do with? Making love to her with Vision's Clear. I don't think so. Wow. I could believe that. I mean, especially in 1992 slash three. Yes. I guess that's truth. I mean, we only know what we know as you keep saying, and who knows who was the head of MTV, and who knows what, who knows who the advertisers were? You know, maybe they were all from the South. I don't know. Was that a conversation at the record company too? Like, were they okay with this song being the lead single off that? Or was they- Yeah, and that, and, that's, and that should be mentioned. You know, for all these things that I'm saying that were the, the scattershot negative things, there was such a positive thrust. First of all, I'm signed. And I got to choose between seven labels after being, you know, it, you know completely shooed away for all of those other years. I'm signed, choosing between seven major labels, meeting with the heads of all of them. I chose Sony because they had Bob Dylan and Billy Holiday, basically. And they used to have John Hammond as the A&R guy. And then, and, um, and then I also loved George Michael. The, the album Father Figure was so big for me. The, or, or the album, it was The album was called what? Not great, no. Was that but off? Was the album called Faith? Faith. Great. Yeah. I, was, I just put the song writing on that and Kissing a Fool, all those songs. I really transcribed every single one of them. So they had George Michael everywhere. So, and I remember that was my bond with the head of the label was that he said, what's your favorite song, pop song? And I said, Father Figure. And it was his favorite pop song. And then I thought, okay, I can work with this person. <laughs> Still silly to base your whole business on that. But anyway, um, it did work. They did support my album. They, they I, you know, I was working hand in hand with the producer, Richard Off. There was no other writers. We worked from my demos. They loved my home demos so much that we built the songs on top of many of the home demos, not all of them, but many of them, like some of my favorite songs before I walk on fire as a demo vocal, demo, the percussion on so many of the songs, um, Don't Stop Swaying was from my home, you know, my, my home stuff that I did. Yeah. So they let me make the album I wanted to make. If anybody walked in that studio and even had the inkling that they were going to try and get writing credit, I was so fierce. I would never, I was like, don't even go. I said, you want to, to think you can write on my song? Go out the door right now. I don't even want you near me because you ain't writing on my song. I'm writing these songs. I didn't even want them near. I didn't even want an idea from somebody who thought they were going to try to use me. I wanted the music to be so pure. And they let that album out. And I love them for that. And that's the bigger picture. That's actually what really matters. They supported Damn I Wish I Was Your Lover with three verses, a 16-bar bridge, and every single chorus is different. That's incredible. Musically yeah. and then lyrically, look at it. Yeah. I mean, 
it's not your typical hit song to launch no, a career. And they really were behind me and they thought I was going to be even bigger than I was. They were really, really believed in my reach and my talent. So, um, so all this, like I said, that the scattershot from it, if that's the right word, is like, I don't want to dwell on that as much as I want to dwell on the fact that I did get that support and they really believed in it and they believed in that album 100%. And you made an alternative video, which MTV ran. Yes. Yeah. And that was okay. That was cute. It was adorable, really. It got the word out there, right? Right. The other thing that, well, you know, when we first came on before we started recording, you said to me that I look familiar. And I told you it was because I was at your show at City Winery when you were in, I think it was 2019. I came up to you afterwards and told you this. I don't know if you knew this or you remember, but Damn I Wish Your Lover was the song, really probably one of the biggest love triangles in TV history on 90210, Kelly, Brenda, and Dylan. That was Kelly... Dylan cheated on Brenda, Shannon Doherty, Luke Perry. I, I told you this all after the show and you were like, what yeah. are you talking about? But no, it, was, it. <laughs> it was a huge thing on 90210. It was like the song of their summer when like one major character cheated on his girlfriend with like her best friend and it was like iconic. So it's amazing. See, and I didn't know that. I'm so grateful you told me. Any 90210 fan out there, like if you ask them what the one song they remember from the show, it would probably be Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that I make decisions based on what is good for me, not everyone else. I live my life unapologetically and authentically as myself. And that is why when it came time to lose weight, the only thing that worked for me was Noom. What I loved about Noom is that they don't label foods good or bad, foods permitted and foods that are never permitted. They take a psychology-based approach and rather than focus on the food, they focus on why we make the choices that we do. Noom has helped me break so many bad habits, particularly with sugar. I love sugar candy, Skittles, Swedish Fish, Starburst, you name it, I love it. Rather than just say those foods weren't allowed, Noom helped me understand why I have these cravings, especially at certain times of the day. And slowly I started to change these habits. I crave sugar less, I shopped better. Noom, I cannot recommend enough. The app is so easy to use also, and what I love best is it only takes 10 minutes of your time a day, just 10 minutes. So start building better habits for healthier long-term results. You can sign up for this trial at noom.com slash velvet. That's right. By listening to this podcast, you too get to try Noom. You can sign up for your trial at noom.com slash velvet. And Noom is N O. O-M, noom.com slash velvet. Go there, sign up for your trial and let me know how it works out for you guys. It's great and it has really helped me. See that? That's amazing. And you know, when I became a songwriter, David, all I wanted to do when I would, you know, pray or wish I'm a star, I would just, I just wished to write one great song, one great classic song. And then when that one came out, I knew, I knew that was the one. But then now it's like, I feel like I've written many really good songs. And it's funny to think that that, I remember a time when all, I hadn't ever even written one great song. It's so beautiful to think how we do really grow in spite of how we think that everything is going to turn out bad. It turns out pretty good. 
and you talk about like a memory, like Chelsea, like I cannot hear damn, I wish your lover. It goes to 90210 and it goes to Christopher street just because you lived on Christopher street. It was, I lived on, it's just, that's, that's where I think, I think of my Christopher street apartment. I think of 90210 still to this day. So yeah. there you go. Then you had a second album, which was also a hit as I lay me down was the song, which yeah. kind of became a big thing. And then I know your third album and that's when things started to fall out with your record company and you left and you started your own label. Was that liberating or was that like, holy shit, what am I doing? I regret this. Welcome to the business. I'm fighting with a record company over artistic rights. I mean, Prince did it. Then people, we still hear of people doing it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the fight over the banjo with Sony just seemed like along the line of many things that had happened before, you know, there, there was a lot of, there were a lot of issues. Um, you know, like even with Whaler, the, the second record, as you mentioned, you know, Sony said, move to Europe, America doesn't get you. And I thought that is, doesn't seem right. It does, it seems like America, like you just said, 90210, it seems like America does get me. What are you telling me to move to Europe for? But anyways, that was, again, it's these random people, you know, on the one hand, we don't want corporations to have power but on the other hand people with power in general is just a scary thing so then i moved to europe for the second one and and that was four years in europe i love living there i love living in london lived in Hampstead, right on the heath do you ever ask yourself why are so many dogs suffering with health issues well actress katherine heigl who's helped save over 1600 dogs through her foundation says she's seeing more issues with dogs joints odors and health than ever before and after doing a ton of research says there's one place we can look to support any dog's health their food so she decided to create something she could actually feel good about feeding her dogs and it's called superfood complete superfood complete is the only food i use for the dog in my life, Doherty. Why? Because Doherty's health is so important to me. Doherty is so picky. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but he loves this dog food. What do I love best about Superfood Complete? The fact that it's made with over 30 of the healthiest ingredients on the planet. But don't take my word for it. Go to badlandsranch.com velvet in order right now to get 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S ranch.com slash velvet today. It's sandal season, and that's something I used to wait all year for. But now with the new Croc-style sandals, I embrace those feel-good summer vibes all year long. And you can too. I love Croc's new getaway sandals. With their new feel-free technology, they're so light and soft, it feels like you don't have shoes on at all. It's like walking on clouds. They're Brooklyn sandals. They're so stylish and sophisticated. They have a classic style and a modern simplicity. And let's not forget their new Miami sandals. They're an elevated silhouette and they have a slight lift, which I love. So thanks to Crocs, these aren't just sandals for a single season. You can wear them year-round. And that's what I love best about Crocs because being this comfortable transcends a single season or a single vacation or even a single moment. It's a mindset. Thank you, Crocs. And right now you get 20% off your next purchase at crocs.com. Just use the code sandals20 at checkout. That's sandals20 at crocs.com for 20% off your purchase. 
Do you remember Tuesday, September 20th, 2016? Because we do. Because it's the day This Is Us premiered after more than 70 million of you watched our trailer and made our show go viral. I'm Mandy Moore. I am Chris Sullivan. And I am Sterling Brown. We are your hosts of That Was Us, a rewatch podcast starting May 14th. Listen to our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll be able to watch our episodes on the That Was Us YouTube channel. I absolutely love my life. And then I recorded with Steve Lipson at the aquarium and he had done Annie Lennox's record before that. So everything was great. But then, and you know, you know, Paris on the train, whatever, all the time. It was really a great lifestyle. And then touring, 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 of course, the work, the work, the work. And then I come back to America and then As I Be Down becomes a hit here. And then the third album, you know, Sony, it, the world was changing. And it wasn't just Sony, it was the whole world was becoming these conglomerates and songwriters were now it wasn't just one songwriter it was 10 songwriters per song and you know i wasn't i didn't want to do that i didn't want to go into a what they call a tribe of songwriters i didn't want to be over mixed and overproduced i wanted to get more and more real because the older i got the more i started to understand people like joni mitchell and the more i wanted to be like her or the more I wanted to be more like Joan Baez. I didn't, or Bob Dylan, I didn't want to be. Um, again, I never wanted to be famous. I was never doing this for the money. So as I developed as an artist, it was just a natural sort of split from Sony because they, and I kept saying, but you know, this is the artist who does actually write the hits. So let me be that artist. And then you'll get your hits. But they didn't understand that whoever they were, I don't even remember who they were anymore. But there was this big misunderstanding about where the hits were going to come from. Although Lose Your Way did become a big hit and the banjo was fabulous on it. And then the banjo was on pop music, on pop radio, you know, two years after everyone had a banjo. So it was just that I was a little bit ahead of my time on that one. So when the split came to Sony, it was a natural split because I just had to be, I had to keep trying to be the artist that I was always aspiring to be. And that was developing. I was becoming a better musician. I was becoming a more, comp I don't know, complicated person. I was just growing. We're all just growing all the time, right? So then when I left Sony and they said, you know, if you want to leave, you can leave. And I said, I'd love to leave. And I wanted my master's. And they gave me the master's for the third record. And I thought that was okay. And, and I went off and I started this label. I, I had this idea of being sort of this American entrepreneur. And I thought, you know, this is the American dream. You go out west and you start your own business and you put everything into it and you see if you can make it. And most times people fail, but sometimes you thrive. And I was willing to take the chance. And it wasn't any much more work or less work. It's the same work. You're always working. And, the, the, and I didn't have Sony behind me, but were they behind me? I'm not sure. So anyways, I think those years were kind of, this is the natural step, you know, I'm, I had, uh, I had the support of my recent success. And then, but as the years went on, it became, you know, there's less and less, well, the world keeps changing. That's all too. So, so you have to keep redefining. And I think that I'm not even sure if I were on Sony now that there would be any, any much, much more of a difference. We don't know. We don't know. I'm sure it was tough. Like people around you, I'm sure were like, well, maybe not, but I'm sure they were like, you don't want money and fame. Like you're in this for the work. I'm sure did that, 
you know, did, I mean, the record company, yeah, everyone like said that out front. I mean, managers who were interviewing with me said, you know, I, I love Sophie's music and I love her, her joy or whatever and her, her and sort of effervescence. But I, if you don't want to be famous, you really shouldn't be in this business. And it wasn't, and again, it wasn't like I'm against fame, like a big ax. It was that I wasn't going to make fame the goal. I wanted to make the great work the goal and take whatever came with that, whatever struggles or success came with that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. What about were you, did you have any like famous friends that it's like, look at this is still with yeah. Madonna, Whitney, Britney yeah. was coming, the boy bands in sync. Like this was that time of music, Paul yeah. Abdul. Like, did you have any famous friends that we would be shocked? Oh, Sophie B. Hawkins was best friends with Madonna and used to go out for drinks every day. Well, I, I, I think I know, I know that people want, want to know that. So I um, mean, the, the truth is I did spend a few um, pretty interesting weekends at Madonna's house in Florida. And I had my famous, you know, Rosie, he was my friend for many, many years. She still is my friend. And I had many famous people I knew along the way. George Michael was one of my favorite people to hang out with. In London, we spent many nights together. And uh, and as far as favorite people, David Bowie, we had many, two, two major dinners. And I, I, it's in my book, so I don't want to give too much away. I had, um, there was people I really liked and there was people who were not as interesting. And the people I really liked had a much harder time and like George Michael, he and I were very aligned, actually, I have to say. He was older, kind of like an older brother. We got each other. So, yeah, I had all those people. I don't, I don't want to say too much. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to the stories. My perception changes over time. But I will say what you said. Some people, fame is an addiction. And it's very hard to be around those people. I would rather be around my children and my dogs than that. That, that, that vibe is too much for me. I can't even believe it. Like what's happening, I'm going, are you serious? Do you really, this really, this does it for you? Oh my God, I gotta get away. <laughs> are you talking about anyone in particular? Oh yes, but I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it because you know what? It sounds judgmental and creepy to, to, to say things like that. But just in general, like we said before, there are different kinds of people. There's people who are happy with power and people who think power is, what are you kidding me? You're going to do that? That's crazy. That's the world we're living in. Okay, so you could save all that for your book, which I'll buy, and you can come back on when your book comes out. But what was, like, you could give me a top line if you don't want to get into details, but what was, like, weekends at Madonna's house like? Just humor me as a self-respecting gay man here today. Oh, you're so sweet. Okay, well, first of all, um, she was very nice. She was very hospitable. And the Thanksgiving there was really funny. Uh, I can tell you that she was very appreciative. She did her own dishes. And there was a reason she did her own dishes, which I'm not going to give away. But um, I'm not even going to write about Madonna, to be honest. Don't buy my book to, to read about Madonna, because I don't know enough about her. But my impressions of her was she was in, actually incredibly intelligent, gracious, and there's a lot of protection there. She's a lot of protection in her own self. So, but I would say that, um, he, who's that great makeup artist that she had around her for so many years? Kevin O'Connor. Kevin O'Connor. Uh, yeah. No, that man I can talk about. 
He was amazing. See, Sarah is the person I really bonded with. Do you, uh, let me tell you a story about that. Are you just say about Madonna? She's a wonderful person, very giving, and, and the world probably doesn't know how giving she is. Um, but let me just say about Kim and Kwan, who's really a deep person, and I loved him so much. And do you know that that's a person, unlike so many people who could see talent and could see beauty and could, he could say it, he could taste it, and he could tell you what it tasted like, and he didn't care what anybody said. He didn't care if he was wrong. Do you know where I met him? Where? I met him in a meeting. It was before I was signed. He didn't know anything about me. We were in an Al-Anon meeting in the West Village. And he, he's a beautiful man. He, I shared my story. I was so young. I shared my story and beautiful, handsome, pale, big lip, brown haired, tall, gorgeous man comes up to me, Kevin. And he says, I love your lipstick. Where did you get it? I mean, of course I got it at the drugstore. I was just a poor little kid. He was so great, but it was Elizabeth Arden, this red, you know, and against my face. It was the first person who ever said I was beautiful and I was not known as anything, certainly not beautiful. So that's about Kevin O'Quinn. Beautiful, right? Yeah. He, he saw my face, heard my story, saw my lipstick, but, he, but because he's who he is, he zoomed in on my lipstick and what I, and he struck up a conversation, but you know, that was a great sort of icebreaker for us. And we did talk and chat after every meeting. Um, I loved him so much. I didn't know he was a famous makeup artist. I didn't know anybody he worked with. I didn't know anything about him. And he didn't know anything about me. Wow. Dinners with David Bowie must have had something interesting. Well, I loved him because he was extremely funny and he really loved funny people. And so when I sensed that he, we were eating at this place, it's him and Iman and me and Rosie. And when he started to laugh at certain things, me and Rosie handed up so much. And that was really lovely to see because, you know, he was my greatest idol. He was my model of an artist. And to be sitting there and, you know, I could have been mute and scared and not known anything to say to this person who loves great artists and pretty much knew everything in my mind. I couldn't talk about his work. I couldn't talk. I just thought there was nothing that I could, nothing of value I could bring to the table to this person. But then the valuable thing that I could bring was humor. And so me and Rosie just made him laugh all night. It was such a great thing. That's the thing about fame. Like when you get to know people, like it's just yeah. everyone's a person. Like I know it sounds so trite, but it really is true. Yes. That everyone, well, yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. I don't think everyone is just a person. And the only reason is a gut reaction I have. I do think some people put themselves on the line much more than others. And then you're living in a very different way. And I do think David Bowie is one of those people. So I wasn't wrong to think. What a value can I bring to this dinner? That wasn't a wrong thought. That was a correct thought because he has put himself on the line, did put himself on the line so often from such an early time. So it was really right that I would look for the thing and try to not impress him with BS, but try to find the real organic thing that would make his night because he had given me a whole life's worth of inspiration. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, no, he wasn't just a regular person. There's no way. And I want to tell you, I don't think I'm just a regular person. I think I go the extra mile all the time. 
with everyone and with everything. So, and I do meet people who, who, who don't appreciate that. And I don't really, I'm not turned on by it because if, even if with a six-year-old, if you can't see what's amazing and remarkable, they're not, maybe no one's just a regular person, but people become duller and duller and duller as they get older, unless they try not to. And I appreciate the people who really try not to. I appreciate the people who know that they absolutely must change all the time. They must grow. I appreciate the people who don't settle in. That's what I'm saying. I am a little bit passionate about that. Well, I think that keeps you youthful too. You know, like yes. one of the things I personally, just as a person find very sad is like when you meet people at a certain point in their life and they're like, you know, I used to be this, I used to be that. And you're like, oh, I would, this is just me. I would never want to be that. Like I was that and now I'm this, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're at different highs and lows, like your whole life, but you know, like the type of person that says, well, like I was so great when I did all this, like 20 years ago, you're like, you're still great. Like what, you know, it's just, that's, that just always turns me off. This me. I think that's your point. Yeah. I think that if you, you have to, you must keep looking at not only your life, but everyone's life in a new, new way. And that's why you go like, like, this is, this is an example to me. If you're going to go to say a church or a temple and you're going to go just for comfort, that's one thing. But if you're going to go to really hear something and try to apply it to yourself and grow to the point where you're thriving, that's another level. And I think that people do things at different times for different reasons. We all do. But I'm attracted to people who really want to thrive on the highest level. And that's what I'm trying to say. And it's not to say that I am only attracted to that because sometimes we grow by being with someone who triggers us in the other way, someone who maybe won't change, but we love them anyway, whatever. But maybe I just want to say, I don't believe that you can be just person. People are creative beings. That's what the whole thing I said about omnisexuality. We, I don't, I, I would never just say, I'm just a this, or I'm just a that. I said omnisexual because I said, I want to keep growing. I don't want to ever be, you know, settled into I am this. That is so, it is so unrealistic to me. Until you're dead, you actually are still growing. Yeah. I, I, I agree. What about, you know, you, I know you, you say you're omnisexual, you're omnisexual. What about when all the stuff comes out, like you're friends with Rosie, you know, you've been linked to every famous, I mean, Jodie Foster, Rosie, I've saw something, Martina. Oh yeah. I've seen, I mean, Rosie was the main one that made headlines. It was on us weekly, but I've seen things that say you've dated Jodie Foster, Martina Navitaloa. Let's just pick any famous lesbian that was kind of huge in the 80s and 90s and I mean it's still huge but Jodie Foster, Martina and Rosie those are the three if you google your name that you've dated them all. Wow that's a huge compliment. Right those are three but you never have dated any of them. I'm not going to say that I didn't or I did I just love the idea that people think I have and maybe I have and maybe I haven't. But isn't it nice to think about? Listen, I'd be thrilled if someone said that I was dating Jodie Foster. I mean, sign me up. <laughs> sign me up. Yeah, there's this. Um, it's amazing. Yes, that's so nice. That's a compliment that people put me with such people who have um, had so much 
accomplished. They're such accomplished people. I feel complimented. What's the best thing about being friends with Rosie? I mean, she seems like a lot of fun. She's really funny. She's extremely funny. And, and no matter how intense things can get, because she's also really, she's also really, um, she's a beautiful person and there's a lot there. But the greatest thing is the humor. There's always a moment to laugh and, to, you know, it's amazing. Sometimes people who are the funniest, though, have the other side, too. And I think that with all of us, we're funny because we're so, what's the word? We're so inundated with crap. But, <laughs> but that's why we work all the time. And that's why we, we use humor. It's just a, but that's one of the best things about it. And she's fun and funny. And, and quite romantic. I could see hanging out with Rosie for the night to be a hell of a lot of fun. Oh yeah. And 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 yeah, and 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 just smart too. Really smart. If you had to go back and like give yourself advice, like just starting out, you know, like we said, like the music business is a business. Like, and what do you think are the biggest misconceptions for people that say, oh, I, I want to go into this business, you know, let me, what do you think of, what advice would you give yourself and what do you think people have wrong about the music business? Um, well, I can tell you what I've always had wrong about it. And I think that then I've noticed as I've gotten, you know, on in life that other people have made similar mistakes. Um, I think it looks like you can figure it out yourself and that you can see how to do things. It, it might look like everyone around you is doing the wrong things. And then you, you think that you can, you get all stressed out thinking that you would do it this way. You would do it that way. And then you start stressing and trying to more manage things. And what people really absolutely have to have, and I've learned this again and again, but it never sunk into recently. There's a difference between, and this, is straight from somebody I know named Jason, who you know too. And I just learned this is a difference between opportunity and strategy. And I realized when I was speaking to Jason the other day that I, um, I always, I fear missing opportunities. And so sometimes I, and, and in general, I'm not very good at strategy. In general, some people are, my son is phenomenal with strategy. It's like a gift to have that. So if you, if you know who you are and you know that maybe you, I'm someone who can, you say jump, I can definitely jump. You know, you say, you want to do this? Yes. But my weakness is probably, you know, how to get to the next place with a really cohesive strategy in life, in business, in general. Um, I'm too giving, people would say, I would give away everything if, I, if it felt like the right thing to do at the moment. It's not necessarily a good strategy. But so for me, I know my weakness now is that I don't sort of see the forest or the trees a lot. And then I get stressed because it seems like I can see that things are wrong, but then I will try to handle why they're wrong. No, you have to have good people around you. And that is very difficult because most, most artists come from such um, places of isolation or you know, not, in, in general, in very few circumstances do people have really strong families and become really great artists. You usually have really a tough time in the family. And that's why, in a way, you have to work it out by being creative, right? So then you're generally going to surround yourself with those same dynamics, even though you don't know what you're doing. So what I would say to people is to, to, um, to try, okay, here's the, the main thing, is to really try to be honest and know yourself and take responsibility for all your own 
S-H-I-T first, and then look to what the other person's doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, no one can solve your own problems for you. Your problems will remain. I mean, people say this, and it's pretty true. Your problems in the beginning will be your problems in the end if you don't work them out. But strangely enough, those same problems will plague you. You can get a million dollars, but you won't hold on to it if you have if you if you haven't worked out your inner problems. That <laughs> makes sense. Go. Yeah. Fame will come and go. You can have everybody looking at you and have the chance of a lifetime, and you can do well on that chance, but what happens after? What's your strategy? Right. I never thought of it that way, really. I was really always going from thing to thing to thing. And Jason kind of. Well, he's just, he's just one person who pointed it out. And yeah. He, I mean, he's not like the guru of all this. Sorry. But, <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying it's, it's when it hit home recently. And so I wanted to give him credit for the thought, but I'm sure that everyone who is, is in the business knows this. I just happen to have just figured it out. That there's a difference between opportunity and strategy. It seems so obvious, but I never really got that. There's a difference. Do you think you know that? Yeah, I do. Do you think because, the, yeah. the music business is well? Because I, I didn't mean to cut you off too. If you had more to say about that. No, I mean I just happen to know that I'm someone who always fears that they're missing something, and that is, you know, in my life because I started late. I was behind the eight ball. I had so many challenges. Like I said, so then I always feared that I wasn't going to get to the place I was supposed to go. Well, that fear actually kept me from getting to the place I was supposed to go. Do you understand? Yeah, I do. Because I'm one that used to always feel like I was missing out on stuff all the time. Yes. Are you a Scorpio? I'm a Gemini. Okay. Are you a Scorpio? Yes. I love being a Gemini, though. It's fun. You just torture yourself at times, but it's fun in general. But I used to always feel like I was missing out on things. And then just one day I worked, well, not one day, but I eventually worked it out. And you're like, just, it is what it is. So I get that. Do you think it's harder to get into the music business now or easier? I don't think there is a business now. I think that whatever is existing now is um, some kind of formula, some kind of algorithm on, you know, in, in the digital cyberspace i don't think there's a business now except like um you know there's there's um touring when there's not covid and there's you know musicals and there's tv and movies but there's not sort of like a music business music is secondary or third area or fourth area i guess there's there's a word for fourth area but to everything the music is almost irrelevant in most cases i don't think People, I think it's sort of like it was before the fifties, before they, before they, before they were caught and realized they had to pay the artists who wrote the songs. Like it probably was at the fifties. That's where we are now. You're, there's no music business per se. There's the entertainment business, and music figures into it. And you got to figure out how you're going to manage that as a as a as a musician, as a songwriter. Very difficult. You can spend your whole life chasing your tail now but when I was signed there was a music business there was really big powerful record companies and you can get signed and get promoted and you can have you know like opportunities and they could have a strategy which by the way that was the key to my to my um unsuccess was that there was no strategy ever 
And that's because I never had a good manager. Just saying. And it's and and, and that was my fault because I didn't know how to pick one, basically. So, anyways, and, you know, there's a really great. Can I just say something to all artists out there? Yeah. There's a really great book, especially, and I would say this goes to male and female artists, but the book is written for women. It's a book called We W E. And it's by um, Jennifer Nadell and Jillian Anderson. And the reason why I mention it is because there's a fabulous section that really, because they're both artists and very successful artists and have been through a lot, whatever. These are these nine principles for really thriving in your own skin. So there's a whole section where, well, Jennifer, I don't know which one more contributed to this, but I think it was, I remember Jennifer Nadell saying something like, yeah, no matter how successful she was as a broadcast journalist, um, she brought her childhood uh, relationships to her workplace. So in other words, the people, you know, the, the powerful men were, you know, the, the father figures. This happens all the time. And so what I realized when I read that and a, a couple of weeks later, I thought, you know, I behaved so much like a child and I didn't know it because I thought I was like a big grown up, you know, like but I was just a, a real child and I really put these men in this and women in this position of these powerful parents. And I think that would be the advice I could give is but you, you, when you're a child, you can't see these things. So it's kind of hard, but to maybe read the book and assess yourself and try not to, to bring your, try not to treat people in business. Remember that you're probably acting like a child if you're an artist, because most artists are. That's good advice. Yeah. Do you like any, like, are you into any new music? Like, are you into like, you know, Ariana Grande or yeah, Lava, well, or even her. the boys? I love them all, yes. I love her. I love her voice. I love Ariana Grande's voice. You know, I turn on Sirius in the car and I pretty much get something out of every artist, every song. Um, so basically I love, I love strong lyricists. And, but yeah, I, I, I pretty much get something out of everybody. I've never been a big critic of music, I want to tell you. I listen to things. I hear what I like in it. I laugh a lot. I think so-and-so is clever. You know, the thing is I listen to my sons um, when we get in the car together and we listen to music, he plays his playlist. And I don't always want to say, who's that? Because I don't want to appear stupid, but I love his playlist. And they're all people that are not on the radio. They're all people that he just finds, you know? So I can tell you that I love so many songs and I know them by heart and the lyrics are so great but I don't know any of their names because I'm too embarrassed to ask. You could tell me the name and I'll forget it in five minutes. Yes, that's the music business right now. It's almost like faceless. It's, it just seems like, so when you get like a visual and you can remember a lyric, like when I listen now to things that I listened to as a kid, I think most of it is yuck, you know? So, so I think this, these things are all relative with your hormones and with your sense of humor and, who you're with, all these things are, it's all so relative. It's not like, I, that's why I say, I can't be a critic of music because I know it's so based on my mood. And, and if someone I love is playing me something, it's going to be different than if somebody I don't love is playing me something. Like if somebody that I don't like is plays me something, I'm going to go, I don't like that. It's just ridiculously immature. And you look at the music that you listened to when you were young and you say, yeah, because I'm the opposite. I wish I go back to the George Michaels and the Sophie B. Hawkins and the David Bowie's and the Madonna's. And I, I go to the gym every morning and I play like everything that I've had forever. And I try to find new music and I'm like, I don't like any of this. I'm the but you want to know something? Everyone you just mentioned, I love as well. 
But I mean, like my child, I think I'm older than you. My childhood, when I listened to music that was on the radio and all the time and, and people I liked, I mean, it's just, it's okay. It's just not what I remember it to be. But you just mentioned people that I love, absolutely love. That was a great time of making music, the 80s and the 90s. Like, seriously, do you realize how many things that I love didn't even use a click track? And it's so funky, it's unbelievable. I can't even believe that that music was so real before. See, and that's the other thing why I try not to be a critic. Because now I hear all this, I hear all this uh, digital music. And even the voice is so digital and corrected and everything. And I go, wow. All I can say is, wow. That's what I say. I mean, and I just feel like I sound old when I say it, but I feel like it, that's, it was real music. Like it was, it was real. Yeah, you can imagine them playing and you can see Steely Dan. I mean, when I hear Steely Dan now, I just freak out. I freak out for how great the lyrics are, how interesting the melodies, the harmonies, the players. I just go, wow, that is, that's incredible. That they, the people, the Doobie Brothers, that they pulled that stuff off. It yeah. would be the songwriting, you know. Now people are just like trying to write it song. It's ridiculous. I want to puke. So that's what I mean. Don't get don't get me to being like that. I just want to appreciate for what I get out of it. That's why I think why so many people are going to to musical or to to shows and to to TV because music has gotten a little bit, yeah. And you're working on a you're working on something for Broadway now. You said. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. I don't know if it's going to be the Broadway. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking, I call it a playsicle because it's a play. And, it, you know, the book is, is more the struggle in sense writing this really great story with the dialogue that leads to the next and the next and the next. So I call it a playsicle, but it is a, it is a play with songs and music. And I really love it. I love the characters. I've been working on it for a long time. I'm still working on it. Actually going to have my first reading soon. And it's not something that comes fast. I mean, no matter how many times I think there are moments of brilliance, a, a great story is a hard thing to write. It's as hard as writing a great song. Yeah. But maybe even harder in a way. I'm not sure. It depends. I, I remember how many years it took me to write Dan. Many years. So it's writing me, it's taking me many years to write a great place to go. <laughs> it's hard. I couldn't yes. imagine but it's fun. I love getting into it. I love it. And then I love when I meet somebody who can really help me, which is really rare. Most people don't know what's wrong with it, you know, or that it's like, it seems like it's great or it seems like it's almost there, but then you can sometimes meet the strangest person you might meet might say, this is what you do. And they start breaking it down and you go, wow. And you're not even somebody I ever would have thought would have had. It's just amazing. The process of being an artist to me is so amazing because you just don't know. You never know when the great feedback is going to come. And it's usually not the famous person, you know, it's usually not the successful person. It's just the person down the street. You just never thought. And then you could just take that and run with it and just change. Yes. Change, change, change is really difficult though, isn't it? Like when you're working on something, because 
it has, it's like, uh, I guess it's like sculpting and painting. And I know this from painting for sure, you know, it's, it's so easy when you think of what you want to do, but then the minute you put that one tiny stroke, it changes the balance of the whole painting and you've absolutely upped it up. And then you have to change everything around it. So it seems so clear, but it's not clear. And I think that's the process. So when we say it always comes back to the work, it, because the work doesn't really end until somebody absolutely tells you to stop working on it, it's done. That makes sense too. Well, next year is the 30th anniversary of Tongue and Tails. Tongues and Tails. Yes. Anything special planned for that? Yeah, we have stuff coming out, you know, the, the things people can expect are coming out are coming out. And, you know, if COVID is gentle with us as a human race, I'll definitely the Tongues and Tales tour and the book, Come Inside My Jungle Book. And um, hopefully also even the Playsical will be at least on its feet on some level, hopefully. By the end of 2022, I'm really working very hard for all these things to happen. That's great. Have you missed touring just because of COVID? I imagine it's in your blood. Yes. And Well, you know, I, di I didn't miss, I do love being home. I don't know a musician who would ever say that they like to leave the house. Most musicians don't because we have everything here. We have our food, we have our animals, we have our people, we have our instruments. But what, I, but what happened for me with COVID, which was really good, was that I did those solo shows, you know? So I had the computers, like the surgical look at me and no audience. And I had to practice so much to, to do these solo shows in COVID. And it made me actually have the much more confidence now. So now when I just did a solo show last night, I did a sh solo show a couple of nights before that. So now I'm going out there and I used to, my biggest fear, David, was that I would show up for a gig and the whole band will have decided to play a practical joke and not show up. And then everyone would say, she's really not that good. <laughs> she's not able to do her show acoustically on her own. And that was my biggest fear for, you know, 20 years. So now when, if the band doesn't show up and actually it happened last night, somebody who was going to play with me said, I'm not going to do it. And I was like, whatever. I didn't care. I was like, I can do this. I'm not afraid of it anymore. So COVID, there's certain things that I was so afraid of before COVID hit. And they'll afraid of for years and years and years. And then in COVID, I worked on all of them. And now I'm not afraid of um, three major things. The other one is sharks. I'm extremely afraid of sharks as well. Yes. I don't understand anyone who goes in the water. Like here is the water. Everything beneath the water, you cannot see. I have no interest at all in ever going in the water. Really, I don't. I don't understand it. I know. I, I understand what you're saying. And I was really afraid of sharks ever since Jaws. But what happened to me, and then these people keep getting attacked by sharks. And then what uh, happened to me, I think it was this year or it was um, several months ago, I was swimming in one of my favorite bays, but the bay is connected to the ocean. So like the ocean feeds directly into this bay. And I was swimming and I suddenly, and I was floating and meditating. And it used to be that I'd be floating and meditating. And then I suddenly I would imagine a shark and I'd like really gracefully swim back to shore. And I would never have the joy of being able to float and be under the sky in the middle of this bay. And this time I said, okay, shark, if you come, you're not going to eat me. You're going to sniff me. You're going to realize I'm a human who tastes bad. And you're not going to go away because I'm not afraid of you. It was an amazing moment. And I stayed and I stayed and I stayed. And ever since then, I've been able to stay and not feel like I have to run back to shore. And I think it's sort of a deep 
spiritual opening for me. Wow. So you used your time in COVID wisely then? Yeah, I did. If people have a bucket list, I had a bucket list of fears, all the things I wanted to not be afraid of before I die. The sharks, I don't know how you did it. Cause that's, I went shark diving in like off the coast of South Africa, but like you were in a cage and the shark was next to you, but you were in a cage. So that didn't scare me because I was in a cage. If it wasn't See, that, in a cage, I would have been scared. No, I understand that. I don't know how I got the shark thing, but it was a sort of a thing that I wanted to be. It was a, like a, a thing where I wanted to feel, David, that, the, that I'm part of the earth and I'm part of the water. And that, like I used to feel in the city streets, that I will always be protected by New York because New York loves me, because New York is my mother. So then I said, I want to extend that feeling to the earth. Like I'm in the water and the water is supporting me and I'm loved. And why would a shark come and eat me right now? It wouldn't. It was like a beautiful moment of trust. Trust. Maybe trust is an antidote to fear. I think it might be. I just don't trust the sharks just yet. It's not even the sharks. It's the jellyfish. It's just everything else that goes on that you cannot see freaks me out. Yeah, that's, it's, that's our human thing. That's why we put so many walls up. That's kind of why I want to get over these things. Did you love, I'm sure you got to spend a lot of extra time with your children during COVID oh, too. They're really, yeah. I really, I, I was sort of sad when COVID one was ending because I knew I would miss this time with my children. And it came at a really good time for my son because he was 11 and turned 12. And I know by the time he's 13, he's just going to be see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And so I got to have that extra time. It was nice. The teenage years, not that I have children, but I have a niece and a nephew. The teenage years is when it all starts to change, I think. Very difficult. So you have a little more time. Yeah, and a little more time with my six-year-old. Oh, you have time then. Anything else you want to discuss here today? I always have my own agenda, and I like to give people a chance at the end to bring up anything that they would like. Thank you for doing this. This was a great way to spend a Sunday. I, I, I don't, I, I just feel like I ripped you off by not talking about, you know, the famous people that you want to hear about. So I guess I could give you a story if you want it. It's not, but it's not a salacious story. A fun story is always welcome. You didn't rip me off, but I'm always up for a story. Well, I I remember when I did the Dylan tribute, and I think it was 1993 or something or four, I don't remember, but it was at Madison Square Garden, and it was, uh, I guess it was called Dylan Fest, and I got to be on stage with Roseanne Cash and um, Sean Colvin and... um, Oh, everybody. I mean, G.E. Smith's band, G.E. Smith, who I played with recently, and um, Cheryl Crow was there, and she wasn't that famous yet and everything. And, um, and who's the woman they call Mother Courage? You know, uh, she sang the Prince song. You know who I'm talking about. Irish, really rebellious. Oh, um, Sinead Sinead O'Connor. Okay, so it was this amazing moment. We were all backstage, and I guess it's not one particular story, but it was a vibe. We were all, you know, Roseanne Cash pulled me onto her lap because she thought I was so cute. And Sean Coven was next to me. And then I got to meet Bob Dylan in the hallway. And I was standing next to Sinead O'Connor on the stage. And people were booing her. And I put my arm around her. And I felt such um, 
is solidarity with all the artists and all the people in the audience. And I want to tell you that this is interesting about light. So I didn't know then that that show, that particular moment in the backstage and on stage, would come back into my life so many times in so many different ways from people who are in the audience who then became famous people that would you know help me along my career or, or remember that moment and I did I want you and even though and this is a this is a story because I did I want you and apparently people loved it I remember people standing in the top in the cheap seats and I remember and I had this World War II coat on and I took it off and Sony didn't include it on the album and they didn't include it on the videos, but it's a video that pops up every once in a while and people love it. And they'll stop me on the street and say, why didn't they put you on the album? And I go, I don't know why they didn't put me on the album, but it's there, it's out there to be seen. But it was a moment where all these artists were together and the whole audience was so in it. And it was all about Dylan's songs. And it was at the way beginning of my career. And I only mention it because I had such this feeling of being almost like, almost like, I was almost like a spirit because people were so kind, but it's like I was in and out of everybody's vibe and everybody's life. And then I was on stage or whatever. And it never really meant something particular to me, but all in my life, it keeps coming back to me. The people that I was on the stage with, the audience who was there, this moment in time. And there's something beautiful. I wanted to share it with you, I guess, because, you know, Tongues and Tales is going to be re-released in, in 2022 and because you know I told you I wanted to be the Bob Dylan song Positively 4th Street and there's just something amazing in the world going on now David I feel that people are finally finally as uh, more people than not are being, being aware that we are here to to grow spiritually more than anything we're here to thrive spiritually not thrive in money and in fame and in recognition that we we don't want that and and I feel that that togetherness of humans and this aspiration and people who really try to do great work, whether it's great charity work, great songwriting work, great digging a ditch for a plant work, people who do great work, it's a spiritual thing. And that is what's happening now. And people are going to be able to be able to live in that, not to surpass each other and compete with each other, but to exist on that world stage together. And I feel good about humanity. I really you do. Know. I do. I feel good about humanity because I feel people are getting it. And I read certain books by certain authors and I think, wow, they are really putting it out there. Like I mentioned, we, and I've talked about before the book Soul Friends by Stephen Cope. I don't know if you've read it. No. You must, you must, you must, you must, you must. They're breaking ground emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. They're really turning everything on its head and presenting a new way. And I think that that's where we are and we have to just relax and trust and float like they said float because even though those sharks are so scary they're not going to get us what we have to do is grow spiritually that's really our only job i think so and at the end of the day that's what really makes people happy whether they realize that or not that is it right yeah. like that's being loved and loving and just growing spiritually. Like when you put your head down at the end of the night, right? That's what ultimately makes, I think, individuals happy. Yes, like put down your defenses, hug somebody and say, I'm sorry. Even if you don't even think, even if you don't even think it's your fault, whatever, it doesn't matter. Just hug the person and say, I'm sorry. Let's start again because 
nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And we all realize that you have to let go of all these issues. I think so. And I think, I mean, I don't know. I think COVID hopefully has changed certain people to realize that, right? I mean, I do. I think, I, I think so. I hope so. I've seen a lot of people grow for the best. And, and I hear stories about people who haven't, but it's okay. We have to have patience with each other also. And that's what I wanted to say, like, in, to, sum, in, to sum up the whole, what is it like to be famous? What is it like to, to be not famous? What is it like to succeed? What, is it, what are the lean years, all this? The, the main thing throughout all of this is that me as a person, I've been growing spiritually steadily. And I use all these things, like the, the, the fame uh, challenges. The, I use them to grow spiritually. And that to me is the point. And when, that's why I mean, we are not just people. We are spiritual beings. That's the actual answer to what I was trying to say. <laughs> yes, my dog agrees. I hope he, so. He does agree. Right right on cue, too. Yeah. Where can everyone find you online that wants to follow oh. you? Oh, David, sophiebhawkins.com. sophiebhawkins.com. And if they want to see where I'm touring, sophiebhawkins.com slash tour. But just go to the website. When all your new stuff comes out next year, you'll come back. You can come back anytime you want. Thank you. I, I appreciate and you talking. Come, since you're in New York, will you come? To, I'm playing Joe's Pub on North 4th. Will you come? Oh, you are? Yeah, 100%. I'll get you a ticket. I love Joe's Pub. I do too. I love it so much. It's such a March good... I'll, I'll, Joe's Pub is great. So March 4th, I will be there. Good. I appreciate this. Thank you for doing this. Thank you Thank for you. chatting about everything. Keep in touch. Jason has my info. Thank you for talking about it all. And I will definitely be at Jess Pub, but we can speak before then anytime you'd like to come back. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Have a great day. I really appreciate it. You do too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're Behind The Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon, because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind the Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.